then a warning against idolatry, and into chapter 7 for Paul's joy over the church's repentance. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying, and yet we live on, beaten, and yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. 
I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful, as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you and you have not embarrassed me, but just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. Thanks so much, uh, David. Uh, my name's Carl. I'm one of the pastors uh, here. I'm also a giant pumpkin grower extraordinaire. That's um, it's my pumpkin. Uh, I didn't put that there. I just want to make it clear I did not put that there. Uh, and I just also wanted to say thank you to, uh, to Margaret and Linda for sharing what they did before. Uh, it's just really uh, wonderful to have so much wisdom uh, in our church about how we can care for our missionaries. 
Uh, and so it's a great blessing to, to be upskilled, I guess, on how we can do that. So thanks, guys, for, for sharing that. Let's pray and then we'll dig into this word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a God of incredible love, Lord, love that blows our minds, a love that exceeds and overflows and bursts the bounds of our understanding. It's higher than the highest heights and deeper than the deepest depths. And so, Lord, we ask that as we reflect on your word now that we would know that love uh, and, Lord, that that love would indeed touch our lives And having received it through faith in Jesus Christ, that it would overflow into uh, all that we do in the ways that we serve others around us as well. So, Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've read enough novels or poems or watched enough films, you would have come, maybe not across the expression, but at least across the idea of what's often called unrequited love. Uh, unrequited love is the idea, it's often in uh, romantic films, where one person falls desperately in love with somebody else, but that other person doesn't show any love in return. And there are all kinds of poems where people write about those things, and films, and uh, all kinds of things like that. But it is, uh, in fact, one of the great pains of human life. And it's not just in the field of romance that unrequited love is a painful concept, Uh, and a painful feeling. It's true not just in romance, but in any sphere where we love and serve other people, where we put ourselves out for others, where that love is uh, unmet, unreceived and unreturned, it is often a source of great pain. And really that idea is at the heart of those words that David just read for us, from 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and chapter 7. Paul is writing his letter to a church that he's planted. He began it. He's ministered to them over lots of years. There's been difficulties in their relationships. And this chapter is him speaking openly about his love to them and calling them uh, to love, uh, to receive his love and love him in return. So Paul begins here in this chapter by describing the depth of his love and showing just how much he's loved them and how that's been on display in his ministry to them. So he writes in verse 3, We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, he says, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. They've done all that they can to try and show their ministry, this ministry of love to the Corinthians. And then he goes on in the next few verses to explain some of the ways that he's done that. And he gives this list of things like beatings, imprisonments, hard work, sleepless nights, and so on. Uh, It's in all those ways that he has sought to commend his ministry and his love to these Christians. And notice that in this love that he's shown for them, these things that he's done, notice that there's a mix of factors that are at play. So there are some hardships that he's gone through that have been self-imposed, things like great endurance and hard work. Uh, He's done that out of love. Uh, There's also things 
that have cost him uh, dearly things like patience, kindness, sincere love and truthful speech. Those are things that it is often costly to do and to show. So they're self-imposed hardships. Then there are external hardships, things like troubles, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots, sleepless nights and hunger. Then also from verse 8 on, there are relational hardships, glory and dishonour, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, and so on. In other words, Paul wants the Corinthian Christians to know that he's endured, he's undergone the full spread, the full gamut of worldly troubles in his Christ-centred service and Christ-centred love for them. If you were here last week, we looked at 2 Corinthians 4, where we saw that ministry, serving others with the gifts that God has given us, is costly. We often think that we serve others out of the abundance, out of the excess that we have from just doing ordinary life. We serve out of the abundance that we have. But that's a myth. We don't serve out of the abundance of time and gifts and skill and stamina and energy or success. Rather, Paul showed there that he and his companions ministered out of their poverty. They ministered out of their lack. And again, Paul shows the same thing. He does ministry from places of hardship and distress and beatings, prison, dishonor, sorrow, poverty and destitution. It's a bit like in chapter 8, we also encounter the Macedonian church who we're told ministered, gave out of their poverty. Their poverty overflowed in rich generosity. And Paul says those hardships, uh, that ministry out of poverty, out of destitution, shows his love for these Christians. He says in verse 11, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. He says, I want you to know how much I've loved you. These things that I've done have been an act of love. They've opened wide their hearts to these Christians. Paul wants us to know, God wants us to know, that gospel ministry, that serving others with the gifts that Christ has given us, Serving people with the words of the gospel and in other ways, those things are acts of love. First and foremost, of course, they are acts of love for God. But secondly, they're acts of love for the people uh, whom we serve. As I uh, finish up my time here at the branch, I've been reflecting and preparing this sermon Uh, over the last 11 years and I don't know that I can say that everything that I've done in the time that I've been here has been an act of love but I do think, I would like to think that it's true that most of the work that I've done here has been because I love you as people, as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's been an act of loving service uh, in... in, uh, dedication and devotion to you as God's people and as friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. I do it not because I've done it, not because I was being paid uh, or because I had to do it, but because it's an act of love.
And I'm pretty sure if we went around and asked all the people who are involved in serving this church in one way or another, I think that for the most part we'd find the same thing. That all the people here who are serving us in different ways, in whatever that is, they're doing it because it's an act of love. Whether that's serving as Sunday school teachers or youth leaders or setting up chairs or serving and cleaning up after coffee, they do it because of love. And notice too that when Paul speaks about his love here, it's not just passion. Often when I speak to people about who are engaged in ministry in one kind or another, whether it's in church or in some other sphere of life, they often say things like, I feel like I've lost the passion. Uh, And that's because we think that love is marked chiefly by that passionate emotion. But if you've been in any kind of friendship or relationship or marriage, you know that there are times when love is not always marked by deep and overwhelming passion. There are times when you love when it's hard, but you you do it, you serve because you do love them. And that's true of Paul here as well. His love has been marked not by passion, but rather actually the the hallmark of his love here is endurance. Endurance through hardship, through toil, through trouble, through abuse, through beatings, through bad reports. It's not flowers that Paul brought to the church in Corinth, but bruises and sleepless nights and a shattered reputation. It's a far greater act of love to undergo great hardship to serve someone than it is to serve people when life is easy and our hearts are full. It's easy often to serve people when when we feel like that. But when we're tired, uh, when they don't receive our ministry in the way that we hope they will, it's hard. To only serve people when it's easy and when we want to serve them is not actually love. It's not actually love for them. More often, it's actually a love for ourselves. We do it because it makes us feel good about ourselves. So too, when we think of people who have loved us, we might be inclined to think most of those, pe- of those people who, who make the most of us. Uh, who, who think the most of us, who, who encourage us the most or say the nicest things about us. But often, like with Paul, it's those who've put up with us the most, who've endured with us the most through our sinfulness and through our mistakes and through our hard times. It's those who've endured the worst from us and still remained. It's those people who've loved us the most. It's great to sit and to think about all the people around you, here in church and in your broader life, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Who is it who has loved you and served you the most? And give thanks to God for those people. So the first thing Paul wants us to know, God wants us to know, is that our ministry to one another ought to be driven by and full of deep love and affection. But now Paul appeals to the Corinthians to reciprocate their love, to love them in return. He says in verse 12, We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, 
Open wide your hearts also. He says the same thing again in chapter 7, verse 2. Make room for us in your hearts. So this is where the pain of the unrequited love comes out. Paul and Timothy, his ministry team, have loved the Corinthians, but the Corinthians seem to be holding back their love in return. Now, I want to just make clear, I haven't chosen this passage to preach because I I feel jilted, uh, and I want to lay it on heavy before I go. Uh, But I chose this passage because it speaks deeply about love involved in ministry. But at the same time as saying that, it is also true that nothing is so painful and so difficult when we're serving other people when we're giving ourselves up for other people in love, there's nothing that so quickly drains our enthusiasm and our energy as when that's not returned. You may have experienced that at various points in your life. You may be experiencing that right at the moment. You're pouring yourself out in loving service and the people that you're serving seem disinterested uh, or perhaps unaffected by all that you're doing. I think one of the most heartbreaking stories that I've ever heard is of a, of a lady who would go to visit her grandmother. Her grandmother was suffering from dementia uh, and this lady would visit every week. Every week she'd faithfully go and visit her grandmother and every week during her visit, her grandmother's dementia was so adva- advanced that she didn't know she, and she couldn't remember uh, who it was who was there or who it was who'd been visiting. And every week, this lady, as she visited her grandmother, her grandmother would sit there and complain about her and say, whoever it was, Jennifer, she never, she never comes to visit. You know, she, doesn't, she doesn't love me. But faithfully, every week, she would go and visit her grandmother. And sometimes we can feel like that as we pour ourselves out in service to those around us. We can feel unappreciated and unloved. And sometimes that's driven by false motives, by a desire for praise or things like that. But there is also a genuine hurt and pain that comes with pouring ourselves out in love to those who fail to love us in return. And I know, if I'm honest, there have been times when I've felt like that in ministry. It's certainly not been the dominant experience that I've had in this church by God's grace thankful, thankful for the love and kindness that people have showed over many years. But there have also been times uh, when I know that I've poured myself out in love, in doing a particular thing, uh, and it feels as though it's, it's not been received, it's, it's, uh, people have not appreciated it. So there are times when I would flog myself after death to prepare for something and then, and then people might not turn up for it. Uh, and that's painful. And I know that many others who serve us in different ways sometimes feel the same thing. They feel underappreciated. They feel unloved. And we need to be conscious of that and aware of the impact that we have on others when we fail to receive their love and to show our appreciation uh, for them as well. It can be things like coming along and setting up chairs and nobody ever says thank you. It might be something as simple as that. Uh, Or rocking up early to play music each week. Uh, None of us probably know how challenging it is for our musicians to get here an hour early every week. Uh, They set aside their time out of love 
for us to do that? How are we appreciating and loving them in return? Or the elders. I often think of the men in our church who serve as elders. All of them are busy. They run their own businesses or they work hard. They have families. Almost all of them have young families. And they come together for meetings once a month that run sometimes past 11 o'clock. And they serve in other ways. They do that out of love for us. Or the Sunday school teachers uh, who come off a busy week of work and then on Saturday night have to prepare their lesson, get here early, teach the kids, miss out on the sermon. Uh, they do it because they love us and they love our kids. Uh, and they deserve our full and free love and gratitude for all that they do. And there are lots of people in this church, by God's grace, who, who, who show that love in return. Uh, but we also need to be mindful that it's something that we constantly need to be on guard for, to receive the love of others and to love them in return. And again, it's not just in our church life, but it's in all of life. Maybe it's your parents who are pouring out themselves in loving service to you. I think one of the hardest memories from my childhood that I have to live with is uh, memories of my mother slaving away, doing all these things, making the bed, doing the washing, cooking the dinner, cleaning my room, uh, and always being unappreciative. And I think back now and I think, what a, what a, what a, what a profoundly awful way to respond to that love. Uh, thankfully, my mother is a very forgiving woman. Uh, and I can show that love now. But there are lots of people in our lives who are opening up their hearts to us. And God calls us to open wide our hearts to them as well. So that's really the, the, what this chapter is about. Love, being loved uh, and loving in return. But Paul then in the, last, in, the, in the second half of this chapter goes on to talk about two particular obstacles that seem to have been getting in the way of the Corinthians' Love for Paul and Timothy. Uh, and the first obstacle uh, comes in the end of chapter 6, the, uh, in verses seven, uh, 14 sorry, to 7 verse 1. He talks there about not being yoked, as he says, with unbelievers. So he says, don't be yoked with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. It seems that one of the obstacles of the Corinthians loving Paul and Timothy was that their lives were too closely connected with people who were not Christians, people who weren't following God. Now, that image of being yoked and that language of being yoked together, it's not talking about eggs, but it's rather talking about animals. It comes from the Old Testament. Uh, in Deuteronomy 22, verse 10, it says, Do not plough with an ox and a donkey to yoke together. So imagine an ox. Oxes are really big. Oxen are really big. Uh, they're big animals and donkeys are not particularly big. And they're they're yoked together with a wooden beam or whatever and they're pulling a large weight. And 
when you do that, it's not going to end well for one or other of those animals, probably for the donkey. Uh, the donkey's going to be dragged along by the ox, uh, and the donkey's probably going to hamper the ox doing his work. And Paul says it's the same in human relationships. But what does he mean when he says being yoked with unbelievers? He uses uh, all kinds of language here that helps to give us an idea of what he has in mind. So he talks about being yoked, he talks about fellowship, he talks about harmony, being in harmony with unbelievers, he talks about having things in common and being in agreement. So what he seems to have in mind is particularly close relationships. Uh, the warning here is not that we should avoid all contact with people who are not Christians. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says he doesn't, he's not talking about that kind of thing. He doesn't mean that because if we were to do that, we'd have to leave the world. Rather, the danger is close partnerships where the risk is that our allegiance to our partnership will override our allegiance to God. So it's where we're yoked, we have fellowship, we're in harmony, we're in common, we're in agreement with those who are unbelievers such that that relationship will jeopardise our relationship with God and also with God's people. Now the most obvious example of that is one that's often drawn from that partic this particular passage is marriage. So when a Christian person marries somebody who's not a Christian... There, is a, there comes a point where they have to make a choice between one or of two relationships, between the marriage or between God. Uh, there's a very helpful article that was written a number of years ago by the wife of Tim Keller, by Kathy Keller. And this is what she wrote about what often happens in those situations where a Christian marries a non-Christian. She says, In order to be more in sync with your spouse... The Christian will have to push Christ to the margins of his or her life. This may not involve actually repudiating the faith, but in matters such as devotional life, hospitality to believers, small group meetings, emergency hosting of people in need, missionary support, tithing, raising children in the faith, fellowship with other believers, those things will have to be minimised or avoided in order to preserve peace in the home. She says that's one of a number of possibilities uh, that happens. But in every situation, she says, there's a kind of a compromise. Now, marriage, it's worth saying, is a unique example of these relationships in the Bible, of a, of a yoked relationship where God says, look, if you're already in that situation, you should remain married. Uh, nevertheless, what's true of marriage, that is that there's this conflict of allegiances What's true of marriage is also true in other, or it can be true in other relationships as well. And so Paul says we can never elevate our relationships with those who are not Christians beyond a level where they'll jeopardise our relationship with God and his people. So there will be points maybe where we will have to step back from a friendship and to create some space because the danger is that that relationship is asking for an allegiance that will compromise our devotion to God and his people. Now, there will be times when you'll have to opt out of doing things that your friends are doing in order to remain faithful to God. 
There will be times when remaining faithful to Jesus might risk actually damaging or destroying a relationship. That's true not just in friendships, it can be true in business as well. A business partnership with a non-Christian can mean abandoning Jesus in order to maintain the business. You might have different views on how to live in the world responsibly and to do business. There might be pressure to dodge taxes or to cut corners on different things. And the question will be, which allegiance will win out? Paul says we need to be careful that our relationships don't become relationships of being yoked or where we're in complete harmony or in complete agreement such that they trump our relationship with Jesus. And Paul's larger point is not only that those relationships are problematic in and of themselves or in terms of our relationship with God, but these relationships, he says, were keeping the Corinthians from deep relationships of love with Paul and Timothy. So it's not only about our relationship with God, but what are these relationships doing to our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ? the people in our church that we've committed to loving and serving. Kathy Keller, in that quote that I had before, gives some examples of how that can work. So our allegiance to our Christian small group, for example, can be trumped by our allegiance to our non-Christian friends. Who is it that we are more committed to, uh, to loving more deeply? Or our allegiance to our church gathering on Sunday is trumped by our allegiance to an unbelieving husband or an unbelieving wife. Or our allegiance to church fellowship is trumped by our allegiance to an unbelieving family. Uh, in all those ways, God says, these relationships can risk being an obstacle to our love for one another. But our primary responsibility as believers is to love God and to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So that was the first obstacle. The second obstacle, then, that Paul addresses is the past relationship between Paul and the church. So he talks about that in chapter 7, verse 2. He says, Make room for us in your hearts. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've exploited no one. And then he goes on to talk about the history of their problematic relationship. He says in verse 8, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. So he'd written this letter to them, rebuking them for sin in the church, uh, though I did regret it, he says, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorrow, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. He challenged them, but they'd repented. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leads no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. He had to challenge them about the sin in the church. There was a guy who was sleeping with his stepmother, and the church wasn't doing anything about it. There was idolatry in the church. He had to challenge them about that. Finally, his rebukes had led to the Corinthians turning away from their past and turning back to God. They desired to live in a godly and upright way. But now the danger, it seems, is that having challenged them and them having repented, the danger is that the relationship continues, but it continues in this kind of stressed, difficult way. You can imagine how that might happen. You challenge somebody, and although the outcome is good in terms of their relationship with God, 
the relationship that you have with them remains strained, remains difficult, remains tested. And that's what Paul here is trying to deal with. He says to them, he's rehearsing the history of his relationship with the Corinthians so that they would know that even though it's been tough, and even though it pained him to write the letter, and even though there was a good outcome, the Corinthians need to move beyond the past of those hurts, the past, all that's happened, and open wide their hearts to Paul and his co-workers. There's always a danger for us, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that even the best rebuke that we might have to offer to one of our friends or loved ones or fellow church members, that even the best challenge offered in the best spirit for the right reasons can sour a relationship. Even when the correction leads to repentance and the person turning away from sin, acknowledging that there's been wrong done, even when that happens perfectly, it may still lead to a kind of a cooling down in the relationship. It might not lead to open hostility, to fights and bitterness, but it just leads to a cooling off in the relationship. And Paul writes to the Corinthians and urges them to open wide their hearts and he urges us to do the same. He urges us to open wide our hearts to those who maybe have had to speak hard words to us, to challenge us to correct us, to point us in the right direction. He urges us to open wide our hearts and to not let Satan win, to not let Satan gain a foothold by letting coldness into the life of the church. Maybe there's somebody who's had to challenge you at some point. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's someone from your growth group. Maybe it's one of your parents. Maybe it's one of your kids. Uh, And although it's turned out relatively well, you know that there's just been a coldness that's come into the relationship. Uh, And God says to us, don't let that be. Open wide your heart. Love them for loving you. God wants us to overcome whatever obstacles there are that stand in the way of returning the love that those around us have showed to us. Even if they don't love us in return, we still need to keep pouring ourselves out and opening wide our hearts to those who are around us. And that's exactly the model that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't love people who loved him matched his love precisely as he loved them. No one, None of us can love Christ with as much love as he's loved us. The mission that the Father sent him on was to love us, to love us as his enemies. He loved us unto death. But we, having discovered his love, grow to receive his love and to love him in return. And God calls us to do that, not just with Christ, but to do that with each other as well. Let's pray.